Have you ever held a secret inside of you, hoping no one would ever know the truth about your past? For 20 years, I have carefully guarded the secrets of my past, deep in my inner being, hoping those around me would never know of my pain or judge me for the actions of my past. On the outside, I looked put together, but inside, I struggled. Knowing that no one would understand what I have gone through, especially working here in ministry, if they only knew, I was sure I'd be rejected. However, this past February, it became clear to me that God was working in my life to reveal what I have hidden for so long. One day, I had a burning question inside, stemming from a sermon Pastor Samer had, re had recently preached. I approached Jim's office, hoping to get a quick answer and leave. Instead, I uncomfortably settled into a chair in his office, and he started asking me pointed questions, questions that brought to my mind the secrets I was determined to keep hidden. All I wanted to do was give Jim some vague answers and hightail it out of there. God had other plans and instead used Jim to enable me to share the secrets that were locked in my soul, the secrets Satan was using to plant continuous lies in my head. The journey begun that day has brought me here today to share with you my story, a story full of personal tragedy, rejection, and pain. But more than that, I hope you see God's amazing love, mercy, and grace popping up in the midst of every heartbreaking moment. I grew up the youngest of six children in a church-going, emotionally and physically abusive home, which was all about appearance. As a little girl, I found myself night after night tucking myself into bed without a hug, without a kiss, or even someone to pull the covers tight. I assumed every little girl had to stay home alone, got yelled at, was physically abused, and constantly told that she couldn't, shouldn't, and never would. One night, when I was nine years old, I sat alone in my bedroom, longing for love. That night, God spoke to my heart and whispered these words from Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And with that, I became a follower of Christ. Even with the knowledge of God's love, I grew into a shy, introverted teenager who was uncertain of who I was and insecure of all situations. At the age of 17, I was sexually abused, leaving a scar deep within the recesses of my soul. After graduating from high school, I immediately moved out. The day I left home, I also left God. I couldn't fathom God as a God of love after all I had gone through. Leaving home, I found myself in Grand Rapids, Michigan, attending Kendall College. This began a very dark period of my life filled with horrible, sinful choices. I was filled with such horrible emptiness that on three separate occasions, I found myself wanting to end it all. I just wanted the pain to go away. Each time I tried to let go, God was there pulling me back. The first time, a figure caught my eye and literally brought me back from the edge. I believe that night, God sent an angel to save my life. The second time I tried to end my life, God showed up again, and this time, a hand took hold of me, and as hard as I tried, I had no strength to overcome it. God showed up again and saved my life. The final time I tried to take my own life, the doorbell rang. Just like that, a random acquaintance made her way into my apartment and told me she wanted to take me somewhere. Reluctantly, I agreed. She took me to a Christian college hangout, and the events of that night changed my life. There, I met a man named Greg, who I found myself agreeing to go on a date with the following day. He brought me here to Calvary Church, of all places, and eventually back to God. Two weeks later, I sat in my apartment studying. When I heard an audible voice say my name, thinking I was crazy, I looked for someone who could be speaking to me. I realized it was God. 
He then spoke to my heart and said, Sharon, you have two paths for which to choose. The first is the path of destruction you are already on. The second is the path that leads to me and the plans I have for you filled with blessing. The loving God of grace and mercy was calling me back, and that night I fell on my face and gave my life back to him. I've traveled through the next 20 years with great spiritual and emotional growth. I saw God's blessing again and again in my life. Greg became my husband, and God blessed us with four amazing children. I saw my heart begin to heal as the love of my family covered my wounds. However, deep in my soul, I was still hiding these secrets, and Satan's voice continued to whisper lies of doubt. I realize now how desperately he wanted my secrets to stay hidden. Two months ago in Jim's office, the door of my soul was cracked, and light began to seep in. Once that light had begun to transform my life, there was no turning back. God was offering me a life beyond what I could imagine for myself. Two weeks after being in Jim's office, the elders and members of my community group prayed over me, a special time that I consider the most powerful event I've experienced in my life. God showed up that moment in ways I have never seen before. I can say now that not only am I emotionally healed, but I am spiritually healed. I am not the same person I was. I have a peace about who God made me to be that I have never had before. My eyes are set on what God wants me to do, for I know that as long as I'm in the will of God and I'm obedient, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As I begin sharing my secrets with others, instead of rejection, I have found acceptance and love. I have found a freedom to no longer hide my hurts and struggles. Having people pray with and be real with has made all the difference. I realize that God has blessed me by surrounding me with a church community of believers who love me. I look at my life and I see the miracle God has worked. He has blessed me and transformed me. I should not be here today. However, I am living proof that Jesus is real and he is very much alive. God has a special purpose for everything that happens in your life, a plan for you, no matter what you have done, where you have been, or what you are going through. Jesus cares for you. He loves you. He forgives you and he is waiting for you. God took me in every broken piece of my past, and he turned it into a beautiful life, and he is waiting to do the same for you. My name is Sharon, and now you know why I believe in the resurrection. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Praise God for his amazing work. Let's pray together and we'll look at his word. Father, <clears throat> your grace still amazes us. We hear new stories every day of your mercy. And we see, Lord, that you are indeed present. <clears throat> we thank you for Sharon. We thank you that you have intervened in her life. Lord, we are all just trophies of your grace, that none of us would be here if you were not a kind, merciful, gracious, and powerful God who sees us in the midst of this broken world, some of which we are simply the victim of and some of which we are responsible for. And despite all of that, you come and rescue us. Lord, there are some here today who need to experience what Sharon experienced for themselves. I pray that as we look at your word, Jesus, that you would speak to our hearts in a real and tangible way. 
please do not let this simply be going through motions, but come and speak that we might hear and might know that you are risen. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have you ever been driving on the freeway and missed your exit because you didn't see the sign? Or perhaps think you understood the sign and get off at the wrong exit. Maybe you end up going east when you thought you were going west. For me, that whole Alpine, I-96 East, 131 South thing, that, that still befuddles me when I'm trying to figure that out. Now, it doesn't happen as often these days because of the GPS systems many of us have, but it's not too long ago that I can remember a scenario where taking a long road trip with a navigator who shall remain nameless, uh, and we were driving along, and I remember saying to her, uh, <laughs> to the navigator, uh, what's our next turn? And she responded, when we get past Oklahoma City, we need to go south on US 75. To which I replied, we've already passed Oklahoma City. Her reply was, have you seen any signs for 75? I said, no, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for signs for US 75. And then I asked her, have you seen any signs for 75? She replied, I didn't know we had passed Oklahoma City. <laughs> Now, this hypothetical situation <laughs> illustrates both the power and the weakness of road signs. The power is, is that if you read them and if you understand them, they will take you exactly where you need to go. And it's amazing. You can get someplace that you've never, ever been before simply by following the signs. The weakness of signs, on the other hand, though, is, is if you miss them or ignore them or misunderstand them, you can end up hopelessly lost. Could you imagine, for example, driving cross-country if there were no signs anywhere? How would anybody get where they were trying to go? That's the power and the weakness of signs. But not only are there road signs when we take road trips, but there's also something we could describe as faith signs or signs on our journeys of faith. These two are incredibly powerful because they can guide us and direct us places, even places we've never been before. But they too have that weakness that if they are ignored or misunderstood or missed, that we can be simply driving through our faith journeys in a blind way. For example, this morning, there have already been what I would call faith signs that have happened here this morning in this service. Many of us might have missed them. So what I want to do this morning is explain what a faith sign is how they work, and then talk about some of the ones that have already happened here today. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of John, chapter 20? 
John chapter 20. There are Bibles either underneath your seat or in the rack in front of you. And if you take one of those Bibles and turn to page 769, you'll be exactly where we are. John chapter 20, page 769. I will be reading verses 24 to 31. And in this passage, we will find out what a faith sign is and how they work. And then we'll come back and talk about the ones that have already happened here this morning and what they mean for you and for me. John chapter 20, please listen as I read verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This is referring to the first Easter Sunday morning, 2,000 some years ago. When Jesus was resurrected, he appeared that evening to his apostles, to the twelve. Judas was, of course, not there, having betrayed Jesus. But Thomas, one of the twelve, wasn't present either. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, the story of Thomas is perhaps the most relevant and important story in John's gospel for us today. John's purpose, after all, is he's writing so that we might believe. And Thomas is the last person in John's gospel to come to believe. And as such, he helps us understand what it means to believe and how that happens. First, consider what does it mean to believe. Look at verse number 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. When Thomas comes to acknowledge that Jesus is not just some human guy, not just some teacher, not just some person crucified on a cross, when he comes to the understanding that this person is also the creator God of the universe, the one who holds everything together, the one who has made everything, 
When Thomas comes to that point, then he becomes a believer. It's when he understands that Jesus is God. After all, look at verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing that Jesus is uniquely God, that he is God's Son, God in the flesh, then you experience a beautiful life, eternal life, life that never ends. Now, Thomas seems to have figured this out for the first time at this moment. It's like the light dawns, like the blinders fell off. But remember, Thomas is one of his 12 apostles. He's been with him the whole time for three years. He's been listening to what he says. He's seen what he's done. But for whatever reason, it never really sunk into him that this person that he was listening to, that he was talking about, that he was watching, that person is himself God. And in this moment, it's like the light goes on. And suddenly it dawns on Thomas. I get it, finally. My Lord and my God. Now, John's goal is not just simply for Thomas to believe. It's for all of us to believe. So how does that happen? How can you and I reach that point where we stop looking at Jesus as some sort of historical figure only or some sort of guy who died on a cross or even a good religious person? How can we get to the point where our eyes are open and suddenly we see what we never saw before, that he is God himself? Well, how did it happen for Thomas? Well, he experienced what we might call a miracle. I mean, after all, just a week or so ago, he saw Jesus crucified on a cross, dead. He knows he was dead. He watched him get buried in a tomb. Yet now on this, a week later after Easter, in the evening, Jesus, the guy who was supposed to be dead, has now appeared to him in flesh. Now it's resurrected flesh, but there he is. And he says, hey, Thomas, put your hand here. See the nail hole in my hand. Put your hand in my side where they jammed that spear in. It's me. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas experiences a miracle. Now, John doesn't tend to like the word miracle. He uses it some, but he has another word that he likes to use for what happened to Thomas, and that is the word sign. Sign. Thomas saw a sign. It was like he was driving down the road of his life going along, not exactly sure what direction he was headed in, and all of a sudden at the side of the road, there's a giant billboard that says, Jesus is God. And it dawns on him, that's true. And it's a sign. After all, look what John says in verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous, what? Signs in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not recorded in this book. But these, these what? These signs. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John is saying is, is, hey, look, I saw Jesus do all sorts of stuff. They were signs pointing to the reality that he is indeed God. But John didn't choose to write down everything Jesus said and did. Instead, he chose a very precise number of miraculous signs to share with us. And the number of signs that he chose to tell us about is seven. Now, why seven? In the ancient world, seven was the number you used to denote completion or fullness. Like when we talk about the seven days of creation, that means all of creation. Or when you hear someone say, I'm going to sail the seven seas, they're going everywhere, all over the world. Seven is that idea of fullness, of completion, of the whole thing. In fact, in John's Gospel, he records Jesus saying seven times a statement beginning with, I am the something. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven of those statements Jesus states in John's Gospel showing that he is fully and completely equal with God in all that he does. In addition, seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus takes God's personal name and applies it to himself. Those are different statements than the first seven I mentioned. Seven times Jesus says, God's name, that's my name too showing that he is completely and totally equal with God. So too, there are also seven signs in John's Gospel to fully and completely prove that Jesus is God. Those seven signs as they're narrated through the Gospel of John begin first with Jesus turning water to wine. The second sign is that he heals a nobleman's son. The third sign, he heals a paralytic who had not had use of his legs for 38 years. The fourth sign is that he feeds 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. The fifth sign, he gives sight to a man who had been born blind and had never seen before. The sixth sign, he raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And the seventh sign, the most important of all the signs, is the sign that we're here to celebrate this morning. He raises himself from the dead. Now, there are other places in the Bible in which God the Father is said to have raised Jesus from the dead. But in John's Gospel, Jesus raises himself from the dead. He says, I lay down my life and I pick it back up with my own authority. 
He says, destroy this body, speaking of his body, and I will raise it again in three days. This is the seventh sign that Jesus raises himself from the dead. Now, this is by far and away the most important sign. It's the one that most definitively proves that he's God. If, after all, he's killed on a cross and is still able to raise himself back from the dead, what other explanation is there than that he's God? It's the most important sign, after all, remember. Thomas had seen the other six, and it had not resulted in him understanding who Jesus is. But when the guy he saw who was dead, standing before him again alive, in fulfillment of his own prediction, Thomas sees for the first time and says, my Lord and my God. The other thing that's so important and so powerful about this seventh sign is that the first six signs, if you weren't there when they happened, you weren't there. You missed them. If you weren't there on the day that Jesus turned water into wine, you didn't get to see it. If you weren't there when he healed the nobleman's son, you didn't get to witness it. And in fact, from all six signs, there are no witnesses left. Lazarus has died again. The man with, that was paralyzed has also died. There's nobody left who ate that food. The only thing we have from those first six signs is written testimony about them. But not so with the seventh sign. If you weren't there on that first Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, you weren't there. But that's okay. Thomas wasn't there. He didn't get to be there at that moment when Jesus appeared to his disciples. But that's okay. Because Thomas simply got to see him a week later. That's the power of the seventh sign. It keeps happening over and over again. Now, it's not that Jesus keeps being raised from the dead. That happened just one time on that first Easter 2,000 years ago. But he keeps being alive. And that's why it happens over and over again is because the seventh sign is that Jesus is alive. And that sign is still happening. If you weren't there for the first six, you weren't there. But the seventh, that's still going on today. That's why I said that there were some faith signs that happened already in this service. When the people got up at the beginning of the service to say and testify that they believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, that's a sign. When Sharon got up and shared her story, I mean, really, who do you think it was that sent an angel to stop her from harming herself? Who do you think it was that spoke to her audibly in her apartment when nobody was there and told her, you're on a path to destruction. Come with me and I will lead you to grace. 
Who do you think it was that saw her pain and rescued her out of it? Who do you think it was that sent her into my office and caused the conversation to go in a direction I didn't know it was going to go, she didn't want it to go? Who's the one who was there in my office two weeks later with the elders and her community group when we prayed over her who so powerfully impacted her? Who was that? Who was the one who talked her into sharing her story this morning? certainly wasn't me, and it certainly wasn't her. It was Jesus. And if Jesus rescued her, and if Jesus spoke to her, and if Jesus has healed her, then he's alive. And if he's alive, well, then he's God. What other explanation is there for a fact that a guy who died 2,000 years ago is still interacting with people? He must be alive. It's a sign. So for those of you who are here who do not yet believe in Jesus, the point of Sharon's story, of the testimonies, of what you've read, stop doubting and believe. Jesus is alive, and if he's alive, then he must be God. Now, some of you will sit here and say, well, if what happened to Sharon happened to me, then I would believe. If what happened to Thomas happened to me. I mean, if Jesus showed up in that sort of visible way, well, yeah, then I would believe. Okay. Ask him to. I mean, Thomas, after all, can't take the other disciples' word for it, so he asks for his own. You can do the same. If Jesus is alive, ask him to talk to you. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him to do something to show you he's alive. Now, Jesus does say, it's better if you can listen to the written testimonies, you can hear the very real signs and on the basis of those, realize that Jesus is alive. But if you can't, it's better than not believing. So ask him. But some of you here this morning who are not yet Christians, you don't need something to happen to yourself if you're honest. As you've been here this morning, you felt God's presence. As you listened to the testimonies and sung the songs and something was going on around you, it was indescribable. As Sharon was speaking, something in your heart began to warm. As we've looked at what John has written and Thomas's story and the things that we're saying, something within you is stirring. And you do know deep down, Jesus is alive. He's here talking to me right now. If that's the case, the only natural response is to acknowledge that he is your Lord and your God. What other explanation is there? If he's alive, then he is God. And if he's talking to you, then he is calling you to stop doubting and believe. And what if you're a Christian here this morning? I said that the signs that were in the service, we might have missed them the first time through, but they're beneficial not only for those who do not yet know Jesus, they're also beneficial for those of us who do know Jesus. And that's because Jesus' goal is not that we 
believe on him one time and then simply be done? His goal is that we continue to believe that he's alive. And in order for that to happen, we need signs. We need to be encouraged. Have you ever gone on a long road trip and thought, does this city I'm going to even exist? It feels like we've been driving forever. Are we getting anywhere? Well, it's helpful if along the way you see an occasional sign that says, Dallas, 200 miles. Then you go, well, we're on the right road. We're headed the right direction. Well, we need the same thing in our Christian faith. It's hard to keep believing that Jesus is alive. We don't see him. He's invisible. And there are times in which you and I can begin to doubt. So he says, look, here are some signs. I mean, what happened to Sharon is amazing. Who else could have done these things? And if you're a Christian here and you see what happened, read the sign, discern the sign. Jesus is saying, I'm alive. And for you and I who do know that, be encouraged, be strengthened, be confident. We're on the right road. Yeah, there are times we get confused, but here's a real live sign on the journey saying, you're headed the right direction. Keep going. After all, many of you here who are Christians will remember that old hymn that says, I serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. Why? I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And every time I need him, he's always near. He lives he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. How do we know? Because he talks to us. How do we know? Because he walks with us. He's alive. And because he's alive, he brings us comfort in the midst of our struggles. He shows up in miraculous ways in our lives and in the lives of our friends. Because he's alive, his is the voice in our head saying, hey, knock it off. That sinful behavior, I don't approve of it. His is the voice in our head saying, look, I embrace you. I forgive you for whatever you've done and whoever you are. Because Jesus is alive, we know that he listens to us when we pray and that he is near to us. Because Jesus is alive, he's able to take us safely to heaven at the end of our faith journey. If Jesus, since Jesus is alive and all the signs point that direction, then the only possible conclusion that anybody can draw is that surely he is God. Jesus is God. Amen.